evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater, the largest single-screen drive-in in the United States. We're certainly glad you could be with us this evening. And don't forget the concession stand is open with all kinds of great things to eat and drink. Mahoning Drive-In Radio. Welcome back to another fun episode. We have a very special guest, uh, Mark here, General Manager at the Mahoning Drive-In Theater in Lehighton, Pennsylvania. And I am joined today by Ms. Pamela Pierce Barslow. This is the daughter of Charles B. Pierce, director of such films as The Legend of Boggy Creek, Winterhawk, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, The Norseman, and on and on and on. And she has become the, the caretaker, curator, promoter, impresario of Pamela Pierce Productions, which brought into your hands a finally at long last watchable copy of The Legend of Boggy Creek for your home viewing. And uh, thanks for joining us today, Pam. Thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate you asking me to be on your show. So tell us about how The Legend of Boggy Creek came to be, because your father, Charles Pierce, he started in TV, correct? He did. He started before I was actually born. He had his first television show. So he, right out of high school, he started with the NBC affiliate out of uh, El Dorado. Through time, back then, there were more like a monopoly and these companies would own many stations. This is before they broke it up. So they would send my dad out. They would send him to Beaumont, Texas, and they sent him to, you know, these different places. And as he went, he continued to grow higher in the uh, news department is pretty much where he was. But he had this real funny, charismatic personality. So they end up giving him these shows, TV, local kind of TV shows on the side. He was sent to Shreveport, KTAL, and they had another station in Texarkana. So he ends up in Texarkana. He opens an advertising agency on state line on the Texas side. And he, you know, he becomes very popular. He's, he's kind of a superstar in town. He's got this little kitty show called The Laugh-A-Lot Club with Mayor Chuckles. And he was Mayor Chuckles. And he had people like Lauren Green and Michael Landon and Dan Blocker. And he had Tiny Tim. So he had a few like minor celebrities. So as people would come through the area, like on promotional tours, they would stop in on his show. They would come to the TV station. Exactly. And they'd put him on a show. So, and then his kitty show, he would, he had this uh, thing where the kids would come on and they would make a mark is what it was called. So they would make some kind of doodle or whatever on this big piece of paper and my father had to make a face out of it like a cartoon face well he had won like or he had been voted most talented when he was in his little hampton high school and most likely to succeed he had done the yearbook he had been doing cartoons forever so no one ever he had this bicycle that was the prize no one ever won the bicycle. It was very low budget, this TV show. So he ends up, though, he had grown up watching movies at the, you know, local big theater, you know, as a kid. 
and John Wayne and all that, John Ford, he loved John Houston. He loved these, you know, epic kind of movies. So he starts making these commercials and he starts winning awards. Now he had a lot of clients. He had the department store, Ben F. Smith, which was kind of our fancy department store. He had the big bank and he had Mr. Ledwell who was in the trucking business. They built these big rig trucks. So he had decided that he wanted to do a movie. He had met Earl Smith, the writer, at a party. Earl had a script, and it was the first time my father had ever seen a script. So he got super excited, and he and Earl started writing. Their first thing was called Bright River. So they're working on that, and he convinces, he goes around to a lot of people, but he can't get anyone to put up the money until he finally convinces Mr. Ledwell. So with the trucking company. <laughs> so it ends up, so Mr. Ledwell puts, I think at first they asked for 30, he asked for $30,000. And I think he ends up spending it all in the first three days or so. And it was on film. He spent it on that Technicolor film, which later on, comes to be so important you know that's what he shot that on 35 millimeter widescreen essentially so he went for a really grand look for his first movie out of the gate right and it was the first time a film had ever been shot in that docudrama kind of style so he's trying to put you into that scene with those people and make you feel like you're there so that film the ratio everything the aspects that was very important that he give you that kind of cinematic, you know, kind of big film feel. Even though later on we have these found footage films that are shot on iPhones and stuff. Back then, I mean, that was a gigantic camera that took, you know, five people to operate. And a lot of that is in a swamp and a flat bottom boat. So it was kind of a feat and the way that, I mean, he, he runs out of film and he has to go to Mr. Ledwell and say, Hey buddy, which was what everybody called him, buddy. He said, you're going to lose your money. You know, I, I'm out of money and either you lose your money or you put up another $60,000 so I can finish this thing. So Tommy Clark, who was his business manager and he had been Mr. Ledwell's CFO, he said, that the first time he ever saw my dad, Mr. Ledwell was pointing at him saying, follow him. He's costing me way too much money. So he finishes the film. He takes it to Los Angeles and he convinces this production house that's run by Jaime Mendoza Nava to do the post-production work. Well, Jaime had been a longtime Disney employee and Disney had laid off a bunch of their crew, whatever their editors, Jaime, a composer. Jaime had worked on the on Zorro and the Mickey Mouse Club. I mean, he was a true pro. Tom Booch was the editor. So he convinces them to do the work and they put up another approximately $60,000 worth of services so he comes they introduce him to ralph mcquarrie who ralph was an illustrator working for boeing and nasa and somehow 
Ralph gets in his mind what a Bigfoot going across the Falk, you know, swampland would look like, paints a painting, an oil painting, because my father was an oil painter. He did a lot of his work in oil. And so um, I don't think that they really knew what they were doing. You know, neither one of them had done a movie poster before. So my dad comes back with the one print and the movie on really like a Greyhound bus. So it was a real kind of, you know, then he couldn't get anyone to distribute the film. No one wanted to, you know, they all hung up on him. And, you know, they just, they laughed at him. But when he, but, you know, here's the thing is Mr. Ledwell did have, a lot of money and so he was able to four wall and when they started to four wall can you explain what four walling is for those who might not know sure i didn't know any of these things when i first right, started right. so um four walling is where you go and you rent the theater you pay all of the costs the electric the for the people you pay for the tickets and uh, at the end you take all the profits so there's no risk whatsoever to the theater you're you're taking all the risk they're they're getting rental money it's a good night for them but if if you sell a lot of tickets it's a really good night for you exactly exactly so this is back when tickets used to cost two dollars a piece okay so my dad would he didn't have the distributor so he would he gets a second print it was actually a defective, I believe, flawed print that he had passed on. Well, he convinces them to give him that one, and he starts playing that one in Shreveport at the Strand, and it does the same thing. So it had huge lines that just went for blocks and blocks, and people would camp out. And that's before they did things like that. Right. You know, this is like 1972. It was it was word of mouth and advertising. Like, did he have at that time, do you know, did he have radio ads or anything like that? Not in the beginning. But now you remember that his his job before was advertising. So he was wow. very familiar and he worked at a television station. He was very familiar with radio and television and the power of that. But here's the thing is in the very beginning, they weren't spending any money. And so it was really that McQuarrie poster and word of mouth that started generating those lines and creating that buzz. Well, that poster image is so mysterious. You don't really see the creature in detail. You see that it's something big and scary. And even in the film itself, you never really, which is pretty smart, you never really see it in detail. And it's enough to make your mind fill in the gaps of what that might be. Yeah. Later on, my dad said that the costume in Boggy Creek cost more than the entire production of the original Boggy Creek. That's how much of a difference that, you know. Yeah, so he was smart in keeping that creature off screen. For years, you couldn't see it, you know, from us 40, well, for 45 years, you could not see the creature because in the pan and scan, he's cut off. But now in the restoration, he's in almost every scene. I watched last night the new 4K restoration that you're working on that you kindly provided me a copy of. And I had forgotten how often you get glimpses of the creature in the movie because I think my main memory is when I originally saw it once or twice on those pan and scan versions. And I was Mm. watching it last night. I'm like, oh, wow, you do see it like a good amount. 
And uh, I, I thought that was really cool. I mean, you see it, but you see enough to say, what was that? Or there's something big and hairy right. over there that I don't like. Exactly. Really like, what is that hulking thing over there mm -hmm. in the side? Yeah. A lot of people tell me that watching the restoration remaster is like watching The Legend of Boggy Creek for the first time because there's absolutely so many things that in those years of pan and scan bootleg you were missing. And you realize, I mean, you really can soak up the nature aspect of it. I mean, it's a docudrama, documentary reenactment film that's shot where it happened, more or less. And you just really soak up what that part of the country feels like and what that little town feels like in those people's homes and the clothes and, you know, the 1972-ness of it, as it were. I was saying something about this recently somewhere else where the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, when it was on video, it looked awful. It was dark and gross and people thought it really was scary because of that. Then it was restored to look gorgeous and it made it even more horrifying because when the mm -hmm. scary stuff happens, it's this huge contrast for this bright sunny 70s look and boggy creek does the same thing it's this really lovely place you'd want to go and hunt and fish and hang out <laughs> until you hear that scream then <laughs> you realize right. until the sun goes down yeah and some people in the beginning said oh well no i i, I want it i want it this foggy scratchy that that adds to the ambiance but it does not the film became a blockbuster between 1972 and 1975 and played continuously. Some theaters, it played for a year straight. That movie was everywhere. And it was popular for a reason. It was popular because, well, first of all, the story is a great story. And it's enduring. It is a legend, you know. But also, the cinematography in the film was very critically acclaimed. You know, so that lifts it up, and it's the first full-length documentary, I believe. And it's, remember back then, documentaries were something that you watched for 30 minutes in school. Or TV. Yeah, it was kind of torturous a little bit, you know, to watch a real, a true documentary, you know. And so he to then take that and twist it. But all those years of bootleg did serve their place though because it kept it in the minds of people and like you you may not have seen it if that would not have been available so in a way it's been like a, it's held like a marker you know what i'm saying to now see because this is literally the first time that anyone's been able to see it in its original format, the way it was created to be seen, you know, the way it was seen from 72 to 75. So that's, that was my goal. And I don't know if I told you before, I did this after reading years and years, actually a couple of decades of comments online where people would say, somebody please go work out the copyright and get us a good copy. And I used to think, yeah, somebody needs to do that, you know, never realizing really that that was going to be me one day. So now was it a long, hard road to get the copyright and secure materials to get it restored? So my dad had always told us that the Ledwells, so when they broke up in 75, 
okay, it was during the making of Winterhawk. We were all in Kalispell, Montana. And so afterwards, my dad would say like, oh, they don't like us. If you ever see them, you just go the other way. Just don't even try to talk to them or whatever. So he just told me my whole life that they really kind of hated us. So, you know, when somebody tells you that, you just you stay away, kind of, you know. So then I have a childhood friend, a family friend, who was forever the chief of police in Texarkana, Arkansas. I've known him since I was seven, and he was a beat cop. He told me that his first position of authority was working head of security for my dad on the town that dreaded sundown. He actually plays the murder victim that's married to Don Wells in that movie, my friend Bob. And then Bob's parents used to be the caretakers for my father's big properties and studio out there on Cross Lake in Shreveport, outside of Shreveport. So I'd known Bob forever. So one night, this is about 2011, Bob called me, it was about seven o'clock or so, and he said that he was on his way to Shreveport. I think he was going to the steakhouse or something. Anyway, he said, guess who I've got in the car with me? And I said, who? And he said, Steve Little. Well, I was kind of shocked, you know. And then I thought to myself, well, he doesn't hate us that bad if Bob's calling, you know what I'm saying, if they're right. in the car. And, and Steve didn't say anything. But it made me think, well, he doesn't hate us that bad. So my father had died in 2010, and his estate had been literally taken, stolen, disappeared from he had been married for a third time late, you know, and he was sick. He had Alzheimer's. So all of his paperwork money, royalties, photographs, film, paper, everything, everything. All my father's estate disappeared. So my brother, who was his namesake and really and truly his favorite child, my father had that kind of old fashioned, you know, where the boy, he named his Charles Jr. And he gave him all those roles in the movies and stuff. So it crippled my brother though. Okay, in the end, it crippled my brother. Anyway, he calls me up and he, over this whole course of time, I mean, literally my father was taken. He was secreted away. He was cut off, no information going out in. Okay, it was, I'm going to tell the story, right? Because it was tragic. My brother calls me and he's like, he finds a will. He finds an original will. And he sends it to me and he said, you know, just, I mean, we wanted some pictures. It had been like already three years and we hadn't gotten any kind. In fact, they'd cut us off completely. Okay. We didn't get any information, no kinds of royalties, nothing. So anyway, I took it and I filed for probate in Tennessee where he died up in Erin, Tennessee, way up in the boondocks. Away. Not that, I mean, the good people of Erin are good people, I'm sure, but they really took my dad way out there. So I file and do all that stuff. Well, we write to them and all, they just ignored us, okay? So I end up being named the administratrix in 2014. 
So I'm trying to figure out stuff with no paperwork and I'm hitting kind of dead end. I mean, I, I actually discovered a lot of stuff, but I still couldn't. So anyway, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go back to the very beginning. And so I decided to call Steve Lidwell. And my dad had told me that they wouldn't take our calls, you know, all that stuff. Right. So when I called, anyway, so I called and I said, do you remember me? And he said, I sure do. Now, I'm in the movie. I'm in the original movie. And when I run in saying, Grandpa, Grandpa, we saw him. And my mo- my real mother's peeling potatoes. That was Steve's little cottage on the lead property okay so i as long as as far as much as i can remember i had that was when i saw him last year at the premiere you know what i mean i I don't remember really seeing him but i said do you remember me and he said i do and anyway he was real nice and everything and so i said i went through the whole thing you know i told him that all these years you know fans had written and commented that somebody you know needed to go back and get it you know work out the copyright and get a good copy and i thought my father had done that okay because there's another one short little incident that had happened around 2000 i had actually just my husband was a, a pioneer actually in in uh, internet he was on at that time the bell atlantic's advisory board for the internet and so uh, but i didn't really go on too much my kids did and he did and my kids actually had their own computers that they had built <laughs> so anyway i'm sitting down one night he pours a glass of wine he says sit down and now we know it's surfing the net but right. he said just you know go looking around well it was asked Jeeves was the search engine back then. Mm-hmm. And I asked Jeeves, who is Charles B. Pierce? And they didn't really have websites, but they had chat rooms <laughs> and all this stuff popped up. It was just, it was, it was astonishing because back then nobody had websites and I was going around trying to find stuff and whatever, and you couldn't find anything, but to ask who was Charles B. Pierce. And that's when I first started reading it and hearing about the copyright. Now you couldn't ask my father anything about his business. Okay. You can ask him about his love life or what he was doing or whatever, but she did not ask him about his business. But he was going through this real hard time. I knew he was having a rough time financially as artists many times will do, you know. So I called him up and I said, hey, dad, have you ever heard of the Internet? He was like, well, I heard something about it, I think. <laughs> it's, it's such a funny idea now. But back then, yeah. Yeah, it took a while to, to hold on. Oh, yeah. I mean, when my dad... And Mr. Ledwell broke up in 1975. There was no such thing as home video. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mr. Ledwell was already a rich man. And Boggy Creek, in today's numbers, they put it as, you know, a hundred and almost $70 million in today. And, you know, it turns out Mr. Ledwell owned that 100%, you know? Mm. So anyway, I called my dad and I said, Hey, you know, so he, so he says, yeah, he'd heard of the internet. He, I said, well, look, it's like the library on steroids. 
And I said, just let me just read you a few of these, you know. So I just started reading him some of this stuff. And he starts laughing. And he said, well, baby, let me tell you. He said, I traded, which that turned out to not really be true either. But he said, I traded Boggy Creek and bootleggers for Winterhawk. See, he was right in the middle of making Winterhawk when they broke up. And they broke up. My mom told me they broke up for one reason. Mr. Ledwell told, Steve told me that they broke up for another reason. Steve told me that they broke up because my father was already starting pre-production on the town that dreaded sundown. And they, the Ledwells did not want dreaded sundown to be made because that is a true story as well. And some of those victims families were still alive and the Ledwells were the most prominent you know, business pretty much in the entire town, front and center, you know, so they, so. Didn't want to be seen as exploiting or profiting from that tragedy. Exactly. And Mrs. Ledwell already did not like the legend of Boggy Creek. She was one of those old Methodists. Her family had started the Methodist church there. She was one that your name was in the newspaper when you got married and, you know, and you were born, you were married and you died. You just, and the legend of Boggy Creek was embarrassing to her. That was something that was embarrassing. That was another thing I knew too. As long as Mrs. Ledwell was alive, there was never going to be an official release. You know what I'm saying? Right. Because they held the rights to it. Yeah, and she was, she would have been, there's a, they have a school there in Texarkana, an occupational school, the Ledwells have, you know, founded or whatever, and inside they have a giant picture of both of them, Buddy and Betty on the walls, and Buddy has a quote there, and it says, uh, the only other person outside of General Patton that I ever took orders from was Betty Ledwell. (laughs) Okay, and that's the truth. So anyway, so I called my dad. I said, so he says he traded them. Okay, he traded Boggy Creek and Bootleggers for Winterhawk. I said, well, you need to get in touch with Mr. Ledwell and see what y'all can do because people want to see this on DVD. He said, well, baby, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And then he called me not too long after that, and he said, guess what I'm doing? I, he said he was at Walmart, and he was looking at the – he had been there and I said, oh, you need to put those big displays at the end, you know, and you'll sell them all out. And he said, oh, no, no, we're selling them. We're, they're selling out. They're selling out. But that's how my dad was. They were always selling out or, right. you know, whatever. So so when I called Mr. Ledwell in 2014, I had actually had major surgery mm-hmm. and I couldn't walk and I was I had to rehab. While that was happening, that's when I called Mr. Ledwell in that downtime, you know, that's when I started doing all that research and everything. So when I called Mr. Ledwell and I said, so I'm reading on the Internet that all these people want a good copy and there's no good copies. And I said, I think my dad came back there. He said, Pam, your daddy never came back here. I was like. Oh, no, he didn't. You know, because now here I'm thinking, oh, he already hates me. My dad told me that he hates. And now he's telling me that my dad never came back there. We hadn't had any money from that movie since we put it away in 75. 
anyway, so uh, he said, no, your daddy didn't come. He didn't come around. He didn't. So anyway, I said, oh. so I'm kind of, I have to recover there for a second. And I said, well, would you let me do it? Because the, everybody's asking for it. Everybody's asking for it. And if I can find a good print, because I knew it didn't make any difference just to go get the rights and put out another bad print. Right. So it's totally then was going to hinge on finding the good print. So that took another four years. And I did end up finding out that Technicolor had held the element. So while I'm digging, 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 I'm finding out these things. And so they had held the original elements. And then about the same time that these DVDs were coming out, Mr. Ledwell had ordered those, all of the elements back to Ledwell and Son and Texarkana. And I'm thinking that he was doing that because he was starting to get older and didn't want anyone else to get their hands on them. So he had him shipped back there. So I call and I see that. So they send me the paperwork and everything saying that they were shipped there. They had the UPS, everything, you know, from even that long ago, 2000, 2001, whatever it was. So oh, it might have even been earlier than that. I can't remember exactly. But it was they were old, but they still had them. So I said, there's somewhere, you know, there's somewhere there. And he said, oh, my gosh. Now, they build semi-trucks okay they own an entire portion of the town okay it's a massive facility and in the texas sun we did not know what kind of shape where they had been put up mr ledwell had burned all the copies the film copies six over 650 copies when he ordered them all home the 35 millimeter prints at the at the end of their run you're saying Exactly. In 75, when they broke up, he ordered Mr. Howe to send all those prints, which consisted of five reels of film. So Steve told me they were swimming in film. The other day, somebody told me it was Mrs. Lidwell that ordered them burned. But all of a sudden, they were burned. And so that's the reason that so few exist. Because, you know, Joy Howe was going to do what Mr. Lidwell told him to do. You know what I'm saying? He, it's the, the kind of thing where film fans or collectors or, or historians now think, oh, it, it's that's a it's a travesty that you would do that. But when you think about it, if you own the film, as far as you're concerned, nobody's going to play it anymore or rarely. Why would you have 600 yeah. copies? You might hear, hold on to two or three. Exactly. And th- that was exactly it. I mean, that movie, as we said, it played over and over. Those prints were beat up by then. You know what I'm saying? And he was, when he said they were swimming, I believe that they were swimming. So we didn't know what happened then to the original elements. That was the whole thing. Because Mr. Little had hired an attorney out there and everything. So it was pretty serious then to get them back. So anyway, we didn't know. And then I would say, I would send Steve these, you know, like emails saying like, I'm coming to town. I'm bringing my boots. I'm going to go, you know, like, just give me access. I want to look for it. You know, just let me look for it. And like at one point in time, I had to go to, I ended up acquiring the painting, the Ralph McQuarrie painting. It had been taken from our family by my drug addict brother. And anyway, Lyle, in a very legal way, Lyle Blackburn ends up buying it from these people. My brother had sold it or traded it to or whatever. So 
I had actually been working on that before, right? So I had gone down to get it and was actually in, uh, I was coming that way. I was in Bentonville, Fayetteville. And so I thought this it's either now or never because I, I thought I was getting close to a print. I could just feel it. I don't know why, but I thought I need to go down there and see Mr. Ledwell face to face you know, and see if he's really going to give it, you know, like, let me do this, you know, because I was starting to put a lot of time into it, you know. So anyway, all this stuff happens. I end up having to take a Greyhound bus. Literally, I caught the bus in Fayetteville at 2 a.m. and I got into Texarkana like 7 a.m. I had a friend take me to Mr. Ledwell's, okay, not knowing that Mr. Ledwell's office is right there in the front. Later on, he told me, he said, I can tell if I'm going to hire somebody before they ever come in, he knew he, when I got out of that car, I'm real efficient. And I'm, you know, I, I'm a pack mule. I carry, I have got, I've got kids, you know what I'm saying? But five kids, I carry stuff and I'm real. So he must've seen me getting out of that car. And I came in there and I had those papers from Technical, And I said, do you going to let me do it? And so he had those papers and he said, no, all I have to do is find these for you. And I was like, that's all you have to do. Anyway, so that was probably 2015. And then late 2017, Lyle Blackburn, who's been so helpful. He's written some books on all of this stuff too. I don't know if you know that, but he, he wrote books about the background. and On the history of the, the film? Correct. And, yeah. it, did, does it get into the history of the Falk monster as well? It does, yeah. And I think yeah. he's one of the only, because the Lidwells really would not be interviewed about Boggy Creek. And I think, uh, and I think Lyle's one of the only that's gotten an interview. When I asked Steve if he was coming to the premiere, you know, we did a new premiere in 2018. I said, you're going to be there, right? And he said, Pam, I made plans to be out of town for that weekend long ago. And I was like, he said, I couldn't set one foot in that theater without being bombarded with questions. <laughs> I don't do questions. And you know what? He doesn't do questions. And I totally can respect that, you know? So Lyle had talked to both Buddy and Steve. So Steve was picking up those cash when they still, when they were four walling and they still didn't have a distributor. I kind of jumped ahead. But so my dad at first was picking up that cash from Shreveport at the Strand. Every night we would drive over there and pick up that money. And as it grew, I mean, he was picking up a lot of money. I didn't realize it at the time then. He bought a gun. Well, first he bought a Corvette and he stuffed three kids in the back of his Corvette with his wife, you know, riding shotgun. He bought a gun and he had paper bags and he would put that money in paper bags. I was going to say shopping bags large yeah, paper yeah. brown paper bags it was making hand up money hand over fist okay he became a little bit more important so he didn't have to go every night and pick up the money more and steve was about 23 24 something like that so then steve started going to pick up the money and he told me that when he would make the run from texarkana shreveport el dorada and monroe he'd bring home forty thousand dollars and that's when tickets were $2 a piece. And this is somebody's first movie that they've made. And it's first that, that, that success like that out of the gate is just crazy. 
Oh, he, my dad was kind of the laughing stock. They were like, oh, yeah, you're going to make a movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. Charles Pierce is going to make a movie. Mayor Chuckles is going to make a movie. He's going to make a movie with no actors about a hairy yeah. monster in the woods. Good yeah. luck with that. Yeah. No, seriously. So poor Mrs. Ledwell was mortified. <laughs> so anyway, he was just, it ends up getting the attention of Joy Halk who Joy had his own chain. Not only was he a distributor, but he had his own chain of movie theaters. And he had built, to this day, the Joy Marquee on Canal Street in New Orleans is the tallest marquee of all the theaters. Joy was this very dapper gentleman, spent lots of time in New Orleans, but actually had his house in Texarkana over by the airport. Joy was very into airplanes. And so, so they're doing really well. And my, and my dad's making lots of money. Now we didn't know it because Mr. Ledwell paid my father as if my dad owned half of it. Like he gave him. So it turned out that Mr. Ledwell owned the film a hundred percent. And my father really worked as an employee the other thing that was astonishing is Mr. Lidwell owned Pierce Advertising as well. <laughs> but I didn't know any of those things, you know. So skip over then to December 2017, I believe. And Lyle Blackburn writes to me and he says there is a rare 35 millimeter print up on eBay. And there's a bidding war between two anonymous bidders that have broken out. And he said, I know it's not in public domain, but that rumors out there and that may be two people thinking that they're going to get a print and he said i've been watching it you know i i have it in my he had it in his alerts and he said he had been watching for 10 years and that was the first time a print had ever come up and it was actually from the joy hmm. on canal street in new orleans so i jumped in my daughter was telling me later i was like i can't let that get away like i've got to get that so my daughter was like, if you have to just, you're going to have to go hawk your jewelry or whatever. There's nothing more important than you to get that print. You know, my, my kid was cheering me on. So I, anyway, I did get it. I, I it went up to, well, so Lyle had told me too, he said it was close to $2,000 and that was high for a print. He didn't normally see them go that high. So that's what made him think that too. So I literally set it up where I could buy that print for like, $10,500 I arranged. <laughs> I made sure that if I had to, you know, I was calling friends because I was going to get it, you know? So it ended up costing me like two grand. So that wasn't too terribly bad. And then I got it just days before Christmas and I posted it online and they have lots of Boggy Creek fans that are friends on Facebook. And one of them wrote to me and said, do you have anyone to restore it? And because of all the years of bootleg and the cheesy pan and scan and the B-movie status, it was super important to me to try to elevate it, okay, back to what it once had been, you know, and try to take it out of that sphere. So when this guy tells me that he had some contacts at the George Eastman Museum, I thought that's it. That's that to me. That represented film Kodak. I mean, that's one of the most prestigious film restoration places in the country, if not number one. That's how I felt too. 
early on when I had become the administrator of my dad's estate, the probate lawyer said, try to think like your father would think. So to me, you know, I just, my dad was impressed by very few things in life, but institutions like Kodak and stuff were big in his mind. So that was a no brainer. And they agreed to restore it, which really was um, just a real blessing. I did follow along with um, Night of the Living Dead because they had just restored that. And so I kind of watched what they were doing a bit and kind of was, because my dad's been gone my dad had Alzheimer's for almost 10 years before he died, and he died in 2010. It has been years since my dad was active, and, you know, so I haven't been around that business. And the business has totally changed from right. when my father was working, too. So it's interesting, though, because I look back and I think, well, he was one of the very first independents, and then... For this film to have been put away, we ended up finding it. I, so so I had that one print that I'd gotten off of eBay. And, and so George Eastman cleans it and stuff. And they said that it was going to be too expensive for them to restore. So they said, we got to keep looking. So Quentin Tarantino says that he's got a print, I guess. He says that he's got... he Back then, he said that he had the only... 30, known 35 millimeter. But, you know, Quentin Tarantino's phone number is not just listed in the book. Right. And you can't just call him up, even if, you know, I mean, yeah, it's hard to get to him. So Kyle was my guy at the George Eastman Museum. So he told me that there was another print. And I do believe really that that print even may be at the George Eastman Museum, but he couldn't really tell me because it didn't belong to them. And, you know, <laughs> But he would commiserate with me saying he wished that he had more information because there was another one. So one day he's kind of moaning about it and whatever, and I'm moaning. And I said, well, I don't know if it's true because the, the guy that gave me this information gave me good information, but he also gave me bad information. So, and I said, but he told me that the BFI had two prints. And so he said immediately he said that's it yeah the bfi works like the library of congress in a way does here and if you play in great britain you have to deposit a copy so he said we work with them all the time let me call them i'll call you back and he did he called me back in 15 minutes and he said they do they're shipping it you know it's on its way now I was going to ask you about that because at the end of the restoration, a title comes up and it says special thanks to the BFI. And I wondered how they were involved. That's really interesting. Isn't that fun? That such a innately Southern American movie is saved by being over in England. Yeah. And, you know, when you were saying that it, it really does capture that era of the 70s and that location, you know, to see downtown Falk now with those old cars, you can see what color they are. And, you know, the old gas stations and the way that the people were dressed and the way that they talked. And, and that's real Americana. That captures a place in time that is forever gone. And you can never recreate that. Not accurately. Most re recreations don't really feel genuine if you have any real knowledge of the era or if you lived through it. 
Right. I, I was when I was watching it last night, I was just thinking the people of that area must treasure this movie because it's this hour and a half, you know, no, where they live that doesn't look like that anymore. Amazingly, it actually does kind of. Oh, really, <laughs> does it? Well, yeah, the cars are different. The people are dressed differently, but. Has has the has the the rurals it hasn't been overdeveloped or anything? Not really. They did buy, do Good. a bypass, a, a lot of construction for a long time while they were building this bypass. But still, only there's like there's the Monster March, and then across is a general store, and there's like another little there's a gas station. The Monster Mart doesn't even sell gas anymore. Uh, I don't even think they have a restaurant. The Monster Mart sells pizza. I think that they're one of the best biggest pizza accounts for this pizza company. They sell lots of pizza. Hmm. But that's what I was going to tell you. So let me just show you about this with Mr. Hauk. Mr. Hauk shows up at my dad and mom at our front door, literally just shows up, knocks on the door. My dad had a meeting that morning to go to the bank, the same one that he did the commercials for, State First National Bank. And he was going to uh, get a loan for this house that my parents had been leasing. And my mother had been on him because she knew he was getting money in, you know, and that he had cash. And she's like, okay, now you go down. Because he'd never bought my mother a house before. And they had already been married kind of a long time by that time, you know. So Mr. Hauk knocks on the door and says, you know, will you talk to me? I'm Joy Hauk. Well, my dad was four while renting some of Joy's theaters. So the minute he said who he was, my dad was like, oh, believe me, there's nobody in the world I would rather talk to right now. But I have got to go to this meeting that has been set up and I can't miss it. You know, anyway, so Mr. Howe keeps talking to him and he's like, well, so my dad's like, I have to go to the bank for this, you know, to get a loan. For my wife is hounding me. And so Joy says to him, how much are you looking for? And it was like thirty six or thirty eight thousand. It wasn't a whole lot of money, you know, for a house back then. But that's what it was. And so Mister Hauk says, "Well, if I write you a check for that right now, would you sit down and have the meeting with me? And you yes. could keep the money. Yeah, you can keep <laughs> the money regardless if we do a deal or not." And my dad was like, "Oh yeah, that's a deal I can do." And so he, he canceled the meeting and that's, we used to tease that that's how my mother got her house and my dad got his distributor. Later on, Mr. Ledwell told me that when my dad brought Mr. Howe, so, so Steve had gone, I think he was going to Texas Tech, he said, and he said he was away at school and Buddy called him and said, you're never going to believe this son, but this man just came in and offered us two and a half million dollars for the distribution rights. So that was in 1972. The three of them were quite a pair, Mr. Ledwell, Mr. Halk, and then, of course, my crazy dad. And they were, that that uh, partnership went from Legend of Boggy Creek to the follow-up bootleggers in 74, but not to Winterhawk. Is that how that worked? Right. And then it broke up. So Steve told me that they gave my father a chunk of money to go away and that's so my dad used that money and then he didn't have anything else any further claims on boggy creek or bootleggers it was a split and they were going their own separate ways and the films he made subsequent i mean he was i looked at it last night he made films up until the late 80s really or consistently it looked like almost a movie a year 
My dad. Oh yeah. So then he does continue to go with Joy because that was Joy. That was his business. Steve told me he said we were in the trucking business. We weren't in the movie business. That's you what know? I was thinking. I mean, I mean, it was an interesting way to make some money. But how how long does a trucking company want to be involved in film production? Yeah, especially when your wife is upset about it. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's not worth it. So anyway, so my dad carries on with Mr. Hauk, and then he gets his Sam Arkoff deal. From American International Pictures, a company a lot of our listeners are big fans of. Yeah, AIP. So he does a, it was supposed to be a five-picture deal. I remember he used to talk about this, but I think it ended up only being three. But it could have gone to five. But it started then with The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Which is another gigantic classic movie. Speaking of drive-in movies, that I've been, I've seen it at a drive-in a couple of times, and I was too young to see it when it originally came out. But it, it's a movie that still people still really love, and it still it still works just as good as it did in '76. It really does. That's and you know what? That's another. That's the reason that you never saw Dreaded Sundown bootlegged or anything because there was such a clear, you know, it was AIP and then AIP I think went bankrupt and it became. Orion and then Orion became MGM and there was such a clear title you see with Mr. Ledwell Mr. Ledwell told me he said Pam we weren't going to go chase some fly by night distributor you know the Ledwells really weren't the kind of people that sued people you know they just let that go I have now I've done a lot of research and I found I believe I found where the actual copyright lies for boggy creek to the legend continues interesting in fact i know i found it so do you recall and i'm asking just because i don't know who released that originally because he was with aip for a few films but then it went back to was it and various it went, distributors yeah yeah they did it out of texarkana okay so uh, I, I'm actually thinking about doing, I went home, I went back to Texarkana and I talked to all the players. I'm thinking about doing a show, whether it's a podcast or an actual series beyond the Phantom or Phantom, Phantom Killers, because mm-hmm. while the, uh, while the, phantom killer from the town that dreaded sundown first of all the town that dreaded sundown has, has so many unsolved murders okay a lot and and shocking okay just as shocking as the ones that were portrayed by my father and as i told you my friend our family friend was the he was the chief of police for 35 years for Texarkana, Arkansas. I said, would you like consult? And he said that he would. So I really do want to reach out. But again, if I, if I reached out to Netflix or whatever, who do you call? Do you just call the main number? Oh boy. <laughs> Start pushing buttons. <laughs> that's, that, that's some internet sleuthery I think is involved with that. Yeah. But you know what? A lot of the same people that, you know, um, now, Earl Smith is gone, but a true story is a true story. And one of them, believe it or not, is tied to the rights to Boggy Creek, too. The legend continues. So wow. it is going to make one explosive story. And then a lot of these things will make sense, too. 
I used to say that I would have made a really good detective, except I didn't like blood and guts, you know? <laughs> well, you tell me these stories. I mean, that's what you've done. You're like this, you know, Indiana Jones looking for the rights and the elements and going through all kinds of crazy, you know, mm-hmm. legal chains of ownership and locations and all not. I likened uh, Boggy Creek's copyright to Sleeping Beauty in the castle. Mm-hmm. Because what would happen when these fly-by-nights, as Mr. Ledwell described them, they would go bankrupt. And then this, the bankruptcy would go up and another fly-by-night would buy them, buy the whole catalog, you see. And then they would put it into the records. And so they made them look like attachments. But if you looked at it and you knew where to cut it back, it all died back, you see. The other thing, too, is my husband as I said, was a pioneer in internet. And before that, he had invented the hockey game. I don't know if you remember that, Checks. It's like foosball, the bubble top hockey game. Yes, I actually played one of those not long ago and was thinking of him when I did that. Yes. So David was an early pioneer in ATM machines that connect to the internet. And he also was early in entertainment, virtual reality, together with simulation, like simulators. He was using aircraft simulators and and filming and broadcasting in what was then virtual reality in like 1985, using uh, stereos, you know, like cameras on Emerson Fittipaldi's car, the year he won the Emerson, I mean, the mm-hmm. Indy 500 and was driving for Marlboro. So he had been in in intellectual property for a really long time. And I dealt with many, many, many intellectual property lawyers, but more so in the patent side versus copyright. So when it started, so that time, so I took that bus at 2 a.m. all through the night, which there were tornado warnings that whole time. Those tornadoes were hitting all around. And I was just, I was not afraid for kind of the first time. I don't like storms and I don't like buses and especially together. But I felt like I was on a mission, you know, and that as long as I was on that mission, nothing was going to happen to me, you know? So I get to Mr. Ledwell's and he said that he would do it and stuff, but I still didn't have the print. And then I finally find, we find the print. So then it's time to go back and actually transfer the copyright and all that stuff. So our neighbor, you know, that our neighbor, not too far away is Ken Burns, the yeah. documentary filmmaker. And he has, the wonderful restaurant, Verdicts. Yes. Fine restaurant, fine chocolate. Oh, the best. It's my favorite place. I go there to get a hamburger. Later on, Ken said he opened it so that he could have a good place to go get a hamburger. But anyway, you know it's a very nice restaurant, and so, but casual and all that stuff. So I had heard that Ken Burns lived in the area. So my husband and I were coming back from Keene, and we decided to stop there. And I knew the waitress and I said, have you ever heard of the filmmaker Ken Burns? And she's like, she just lights up or face kind of lights up, you know, and she kind of smiles at me and she said, "Uh uh-huh. And I said, 
does he ever come in here? Because I was thinking, this is kind of the nice place that you would, if you wanted to go get a hamburger or a piece of fish or something, that would be the place that you'd go. And it's it's located less than a block away from Florentine Films in Walpole, New Hampshire, where that's where he makes his films. So yeah, I I had heard that too, that he had bought that restaurant so that he'd have a good place to have lunch around the corner. See, I didn't know that his film studio was there. I had no earthly idea. I just heard that he was from somewhere in New right. Hampshire, you know, and and then when he had done, I think the Roosevelts, he was, he was speaking, I think, at the Keene Library, and they said something that they said something local. They called him local or something. So when I said to her, I said, "Does he ever come in here?" When she moves her back, she kind of turns her back right, and she goes, "She's pointing behind he's her." And just gonna goes, say, "He's right over yeah. there." That's what she said. She goes, did you know that Ken owns this restaurant? And I was like, no, I didn't. And she said, there, there, he's right there. So anyway, it turned out that he is close to somebody that I know well, the Pryor, Senator David Pryor and Barbara Pryor. And it turns out that, so when Ken was making his PBS documentaries and stuff for a long time, Senator Pryor was on that board for PBS so Ken Burns collects quilts and Barbara Pryor had given him this beautiful quilt, I guess. And then at his restaurant, he decides to do a showing with all his movie posters. And I'm the proud owner of the Ralph McQuarrie oil on canvas. So I took off up there. And anyway, so I asked, I said, who, you know, do you have anybody that you could recommend that does television, you know, movie, uh, entertainment intellectual property and he said I do so shortly after that they called me and so we started working on that and then about the same time we were finishing so I actually happened to be down there it was in October of 2018 I think and I got a note from Mr. Ledwell saying I think we found what you've been looking for so that was those elements and I said I'm on my way over there and I went over and they had found them they were in an upstairs they had had a conference room in fact they were about to uh, remodel their upstairs and this had been in a conference room in like a closet in a back closet for all that time so funny how often you hear about that you know some rare film being in some the back of somebody's closet or i think there was an i love lucy episode that was lost that was found under somebody's bed it's just people don't really realize what they have sometimes because it was an independent film and it stayed independent and that was one of the things that made it kind of so unique and then for it to happen like that you know what i'm saying for mr Ledwell to have enough money that he didn't want to deal with it anymore. He didn't need to sell it. He didn't need to sell it to television. He didn't need to sell it to video. He didn't need to take any phone calls. He didn't need, he had his business, okay? He did not look back. And so that's why I kind of likened it to Sleeping Beauty because the thorns just kind of grew up, but it was safe right there because he held it. Well, you know, I didn't realize that until you mentioned it, it was never sold to TV. So it never played on TV, cable, didn't even get a VHS release, right? It, only Legally. the bootleg pan and scan. And if you will remember, it played usually at very obscure times that Mr. Ledwell wouldn't be seeing it. 
Okay. Now they knew about it. Okay. Like he said, he, he told me we weren't going to go chasing a bunch of fly by nights. So now here's the thing it turns out that Texarkana is a federal court there. It's that Fifth Circuit, whatever. I mean, it is a big court. It's the Eastern District or whatever, because it sits right there on the Texas-Arkansas line. They do lots of intellectual property there. Big, big litigation. Apple, the tobacco companies used to have big, big, big judgments out of there as well. But a couple of times I thought, well, I'll just go and get a preemptory kind of a motion or something so that I could I can actually seize you can seize the property if you have those injunctions and I talked to the guy and he's so the top guy for IP and stuff there and he said that he would go do it for me if I wanted him to but you know all that costs money and I'm still continuing to restore I just finished the restoration of the soundtrack and I had the masters done I now have the UHD 4K master. All of that has now been authored. I've restored the bootleggers, the other film Mr. Ledwell gave me, along with lots of other things. So to go and spend money in legal, I spent a lot. I spent about $25,000 with my legal guys, and I did have them remove no bootleg and stuff, the unauthorized pan and scan. So all of those came down, which it was a lot. It was a lot. With the internet and digital, it's so easy to make a copy and keep spreading it out there. It didn't really, I'd let it go on even, so the secondary markets, I'd really let it go on. But about two weeks ago, I found a seller, he was selling the old bootleg. 600 copies and he'd sold almost a hundred and he was doing it right under my nose it was kind of upsetting so i wrote him and i asked him to take it down which he ignored me so anyway i thought that's it my customer doesn't realize necessarily that there's such a vast difference in the quality between the two and they're being ripped off if they buy that pan and scan grayscale oh yeah yeah there's a there's yeah. an official legal Blu-ray out there that looks great, and yeah. now now we know that there's a 4K UHD on the way that's going to look even better. The, the boot I mean, there could be people who are nostalgic for how the bootleg looked because that's how they always saw it. But it, it's nice to actually be able to see the picture, you know. I, I think so. And hey, Mark, there will never be a void of those, but if you want one, you will still be able to find one somewhere. So if that's the way, but just for it to just be out there looking for it and you don't know a difference, you might spend your, because those people that were selling them on eBay were selling them for big money, sometimes way more than I had it, you know, offered for, you know what I'm saying? They weren't getting any deals because it was an old DVD. So I was like, no, I don't want my customer to get that because that's a bad representation, an incorrect representation of my film. I can't tell you the number of films that I saw, you know, on VHS and bad transfers when I was younger. And then you see it on DVD or Blu-ray and it really improves your opinion of the movie because you see that, you know, a lot more care was put into the filmmaking than you realized. And you can actually see everybody on screen, which is a big thing, too. Yeah. 
I mean, I think so. The girls are so pretty too. In Pocky Creek, my dad had a real good eye for beauty, you know, and the girls that he cast were all from from Mary Beth Cersei, and now she's all cleaned up, you know. And the scene is so clear. And I was just looking at it the other day, and I was like, she is so pretty. All the way to Bunny at the end, Bunny D's, where she says, what kind of place is this? Panthers living under the house? <laughs> so you said that you've, uh, in, if, you, if anybody follows you on Facebook, that you post updates on the progress of restorations and new projects and things. You have a soundtrack album coming out in the near future? Yes. So I hired Audio Mechanics, who is, they were suggested by the George Eastman Museum. And if you look at their website, they do all the classics. I mean, African Queen and, you know, just they're entrusted with the serious movies and stuff. So John Polito is the guy that runs that. So he's done the masters for me and they're ready to go. And I had spoken to a couple of record labels mm -hmm. but i've spent a lot of money mark right i've spent, right. spent twenty five thousand dollars at least with just on the soundtrack and that's real dollars not counting all the time that i've worked on it so one of the record labels said i'll give you three grand and you get i mean it was a very small percentage and i was just like I don't think so. I don't think I want to give all my rights away and have no control when I've spent this much money. And, you know, anyway, so I thought, well, I had a really successful release of the DVD Blu-ray. I think I could do the album as well. But here's the thing. I don't want to rush. Like, I want to make sure that all my I's are dotted and my T's are crossed, right. you know. And I have been working on this UHD Blu-ray release for longer and I'm actually further along than on that project and I did go and have this company do the big what they now I know now are called wow displays but that go and you can put your merchandise in there so hopefully in the next year I'm gearing up for a big retail release and that will be I've seen the images of that it's like a the Macquarie poster turned into a large uh, cardboard aisle display, end cap display or something like that. So you right. want to talk about eye catching. <laughs> You're strolling through Walmart and the Falk monsters there. And, you know, here's the thing, just like my dad, I don't really have money for advertising. And I certainly don't have a Mr. Ledwell behind me like this now, but, sure. but I do have the goodwill of people really do i think want to see the film restored and so we've been working with technicolor and they have been most generous and they say they said to us you know when disney and warners and and you know those people come in they have whole teams and you know they've just really they've helped us though they you know and they really know their stuff so they introduced us to new graphic artist and we've I've, I have a slip cover case you know done and and like my husband will go out and buy the latest you know he bought a few of the latest releases and he kind of put them there and then we put our you know our new packaging and, right. it, and it can stand right up against the big boys and in fact the the people who have done now the new artwork are the same people that do it for Disney and Star Wars. So, and as you know, Chewbacca and the Falk Monster, I tease that they're related. 
Yeah, Thug Monsters, Chewbacca's daddy. Because Ralph McQuarrie was the concept artist for Star Wars. And yeah. I mean, if you're a Star Wars fan, his name springs out at you from this conversation because you know who he is. But for people who don't, he, he there are books published of McQuarrie's artwork and his star, specifically his Star Wars art. So before Chewbacca, he was drawing another tall, hairy beast. Yeah. So um, I have believed from the like once I realized that this was my mission and I kind of I know this sounds crazy but I think that this was really my life mission I think that my entire life I was inadvertently groomed for this position you know every single day I'm learning on this whole deal like it's it's a crash course in it all and I hope that at a certain point I will be able to get it and that a Mr. Hauk will be out there somewhere, whether wherever he is, and will step in and say, hey, I noticed that you're doing a really good job, you know, and you're carrying this thing by yourself. Let me help you. And so I'm just, I've been praying for that. And I thought that he was going to just show up at the door, kind of like, you know, Mr. Hauk did. And I kept telling my husband. And anyway, but so I've just gone along. And as I continue, I, I really, I know this sounds crazy, but with that Macquarie image, as I said, that it was that and word of mouth that drove the audiences to the theaters. I think today with new generations coming up, again, that Macquarie artwork is going to grab their attention. And social media is the new word of mouth now. People like something, they share it, so another person can share it. I mean, that's what made the Mahoning Drive-In what it is, was really the internet and social media. So people see something like this, they like it, they're going to tell people about it. Yeah, and we, I mean, we made the, the Falk Monster standees large enough that you can go and you can take your selfies with it and, you know, that whole that whole thing. So, but here's my thing is I, back then they didn't, when my dad and Mr. Lidwell released the film, Mr. Hauk, there were, there was no merchandising, right? So to come back now, I would like to see the Macquarie Bigfoot, which now has become iconic. I'd like to see that on party goods. People write to me and they send me photos and it's like we had a bigfoot party but there's no unified bigfoot you know what i'm saying right to put it on back to school to we have the posters we have the t-shirts that kind of stuff but i envision like the duck dynasty guys and the logo of that bigfoot i mean bigfoot is kind of the king of all like i mean he's mysterious Lions are wonderful elephants, but I mean, Bigfoot's up there at the apex of the creature system. It was Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster when I was a kid. Those yeah. were the two big, mysterious monsters. Yeah, and when you think about it, I mean, who has given us the best image of Bigfoot? It would be Ralph McQuarrie. The most iconic artist, yeah. Ar artistic yeah. rendition. So Star Wars is the most valuable franchise in all of history, in all of the world. So he literally is, he created the look of those things. He discussed them with, you know, Lucas. In reading the, the pieces about it, he, he said that Lucas told Ralph that he wanted Chewbacca to look, he envisioned him as a, a lemur and also his dog. 
And I see that loyalty that Chewbacca has that's kind of like man's best friend. And a little bit I can see through the neck, a lemur, like it's stick like a lemur. But more than anything, I see Bigfoot. So I think that that would be, uh, it would be fun to put that image and it would be worthy. Okay. It would be a worthy image. I was at Ralph Lauren's, one of their outlet, you know, at those factory outlets or whatever on that, when I was going Mm -hmm. anyway, so I stopped at one of the factory outlets and I was looking at the guy, you know, at the Ralph Lauren logo. And I looked up at the guy and I had on all my Boggy Creek merchandise and I was like, yeah, this is my polo pony. And I was, and he was like, oh my gosh, that is like the best logo, you know? So I was like, yeah, but anyway, I haven't gotten golf shirts, but. Through the website, what is the URL for, for people can order the Blu-ray and the various merchandise? So it's www.legendofboggycreek.com. And that's officially licensed. It's the Blu-ray, it's a t-shirt, it's posters. Were there other merch items? So yeah, I'm about, so I'm actually, I just have run out of the posters. I have two sizes normally, so I'll order those probably next week and I'm out of hats. So I'm going to, I'm working on, like I said, a lot of new merchandise, but I try to do it where it's, um, and let me say this too, the merchandise that I do have right now, the t-shirts and stuff, Mr. Ledwell so graciously uh, made through one of his companies. He owns oh, a wow. lot of businesses there. Yeah. So that will probably be the only time that like a Pierce Ledwell kind of production is like going on like that. But he was, he was nice enough to help me with that. I had uh, just talked with uh, Stephen Bissett the other day in a podcast that's going to be coming up and he said to say hello. And I know you know each other well. He's, he's writing a book. Uh, partially or entirely about the legend of Boggy Creek. And he had, it, it, he had really encouraged people and told people buy, if you want this movie, buy it from you, buy it from the official site. And I had said, it is one of the rare occasions. I, I'm a person who, if I want to buy something that somebody has created, I want to buy it as directly from them as possible. So if you are buying Boggy Creek Blu-rays from the legend of Boggy please everybody listening know that you are buying that from the legal rights holder and from the the family of the person who created it. So your money is going exactly where it should be going. Oh, thank you. And you know, I really do. I am a true small business owner, you know, and I am putting the money back into in the film and the restoration and making sure that my father's works are secured. You know, before Boggy Creek was going to continue to disintegrate. I mean, that was just a fact. And it wasn't going to be that another 50 years and it may have been completely lost, which would have been really super sad, I believe. So I am investing it back in and I hope to, as I said, now start to produce other works and tell some of these other stories that I know about. And you got Boggy Creek back in theaters for the last yeah. several years. Um, I saw a screening of it at the Alamo Draft House in Yonkers, uh, and it was, it was it was the new DCP. So that's played. It played drive-ins again. Uh, you, we were talking about that off air the other day. So Legend of Boggy Creek and several of your father's films were big on the drive-in circuit. And watching Boggy Creek, I, I can't think of a better place to watch it than a drive-in because you're outdoors and the, you're hearing the birds and it's it's just like, it's like you're in the movie almost. It's because the Boggy Creek is all set, you know, in, in a rural nature area. And you had some success with it again. I believe it was the Kenda drive-in you were telling me about. 
Yeah, we've so we played the Akenda in northern Arkansas, and she specifically requested it. She got a hold of me, and she told me that she saw customers that she had not seen in years. They came back out to see it, and it was you know people again out to the fences is what she had told me. Oh, so just the the rows were filled with cars. Yeah, all the way out to the fences. So, and you know we sold out. I think we, we sold out Yonkers. We sold out Yonkers, and I think we sold out Brooklyn at the Alamo Draft House, Brooklyn. It was super fun, too, when I have, like, young 20-year-olds or whatever come up to me and say, oh, now I have a new favorite movie, and we'd never seen this movie before, but we saw the poster. Exactly. And they ask me, are the sightings still going on? Do they still have sightings? Which the answer is Yes. Every time when I go down, you know, Denny will tell me a new story. He had recordings the other day that sound very similar to the audio that my dad and, and Earl Smith captured of the actual creature. And that was something that was fascinating because I saw that screening and you came out and did a pretty lengthy Q&A discussion of the movie afterwards. And you had said that the sounds of the creature that you hear in the movie were recordings of the creature. It wasn't something they intentionally made for the film. Right. They went down and captured the recording. I had asked Travis Crabtree about two years ago. I talked to Travis and I said, how did my dad find you and Smokey? And he said, because my brother Lynn had had an encounter and it was in the newspaper and your dad came down and Lynn didn't want his story used and he didn't want to be in the movie. So they came up with Travis's part, you know, so Travis has never had never seen it, he said, but he said the day that they filmed the hunting scene, because Travis is, was one of the key grips when they were filming the hunting scene that day, he said the creature was off in front of them and it was making its screams. That is incredibly creepy. <laughs> Isn't that creepy? Yeah. And my dad told me, too, he said, I don't know what it is that they're seeing down there, but they're definitely seeing something. My dad thought it was an animal, but he didn't think it was a bear. He thought it was a kind of an ape. I don't know if you know this, but in the movie, when they're discussing about what it could be and it's out in the bean field and they've got that orangutan. Yeah, that's actually my father's voice saying, well, no, no, I don't think it's an orangutan. Orangutan's got five toes or whatever. That's my dad talking. And that's kind of how my dad believed. But he didn't believe it was an orangutan, but he thought it may be a type of primate. That's what I kept wondering while I was watching it. You know, is it a bear on its hind legs? That doesn't really make sense from the descriptions. Could it have been some kind of a, a primate or gorilla that somehow got loose and was surviving out there. It was, it's, it's interesting to ponder. Talking about drive-ins, something, you know, we ask everybody we have on the show. Did you ever go to drive-ins in your life growing up or as an adult? <laughs> okay, I'll tell you a wild story. First part is when I was growing up, no, I did not. I think I went to one, I went to see The Hobbit, the cartoon or mm -hmm. something. When my dad was making Gray Eagle in Montana and it stayed light in montana till after midnight he told me i could go because it was still good but when it started to get dark i had to come home right so 
here's the thing. When your father makes horror films, you don't go to Lover's Lane. Okay. Like there would be no way my husband right. used to try to get me to go to Lover, Lover's Lane. It's like my father made the town that dreaded I Sundown. I am not going. <laughs> yeah. Not going to happen, bud. So, uh, so I was always, a, I, I never went. I never went parking. I never went, uh, you know, I didn't go to the drive in. Now, long before my dad started making movies, my dad would, and my mom would take us to the drive-in when we were little bitty kids. You know, my dad loved the drive-in, but he didn't want me going to the drive-in. It's so funny. What the drive-in is changes based on your age. When you're a little kid, it's a fun thing to do with your parents. When you're a teenager, it's a place to be alone. When you get older, it's a place to take your kids. Yeah. Well, so that's what I did. So then I'm, it's, it's about the time that Batman is coming out, and I'm pretty sure it was the Michael Keaton Batman. So, 89? That's what that would have been. Yeah. So, our son Sloan was born in 87. So, he was a huge Batman fan, and we were in Southern California living in Long Beach. And my husband says, Let's go to the drive in. It's they, they're playing first run movies. Da, 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 da. And I probably shouldn't tell this story, but. I will tell you, because it's so bizarre. So I was like, okay. So we go, I, I popped up the popcorn like my mom and dad used to do too. And put it, I put it in the bag and stuff. And then we went and it was fine. Everything was fine. It was an enjoyable evening and there were families there and stuff. So a couple of weeks later, my husband wanted to go again. He's like, let's go back. Let's go to see the, whatever. So we go and it's still light outside. We're like the first people there. It's starting to get you know and they just have opened the ticket office so whatever time that was and as we're going up i get these really strong feelings and i'm like we can't go here and he's like what do you mean we can't go here and i said don't buy the tickets he's like what do you mean we don't buy the tickets i said i don't know but we you can't stay he was like what is wrong with you and i'm like i don't know what's wrong with me but you can't stay and he's just going to ignore me because he thinks I'm PMSing or something, right? So he goes and he stops and he buys the tickets. And I said, but I just, and there was nobody there except for that, in that ticket booth. Like there were no cars at the drive-in. There were no people, nothing. And I just had this overwhelming and I was like, I can't stay. I've got to go. And I said, if you don't go, I'm going to just take the baby and just, I'm going to walk home. And, uh, and so he he peels out okay he's really mad at me and he's saying i'm crazy and all that other stuff do you know the next morning when i went down to get the newspaper the main headline was that a girl had been murdered at that show at that drive-in that night wow that 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 was during those crips and bloods during those days you know and a gang had come to that park and that they pistol whipped the boyfriend or something and then they took the girl and they raped her and she was murdered so that was my intuition wow yeah and that's enough to make you never want to go (laughs) well i don't think it was that i mean i had other weird things that i've had that that were i mean i I had something similar to that at a hotel in bel-air okay but it was just a, a after that i would say to him hey i i I don't know because he 
David wants me to give him a reason when I have these feelings and so it's like I, I can't give you a reason. I just know that I'm but whatever. Right. So after that, I hope that it would help that he wouldn't argue with me when I tell him these things, but he still argues with me sometimes. I have to remind him, remember when that happened? I just wish that I would have saved that newspaper, but I know that that newspaper exists somewhere out there. That's so. wild. Before we go, I have a couple of questions, short questions from our Patreon folks that they sure. wanted to ask you. One, uh, my friend Brendan, Brendan Jones says, ask her about her plates and glassware. Now he's talking about the tablescapes <laughs> that you do. And anybody, it's it's so wild to, to follow you on Facebook because some of it's about Legend of Boggy Creek and some of it are these gorgeous photos that you take of these these tablescapes that you do in your house and to, to talk about that because i've never seen that before so yeah i actually the new york times i think read an article yesterday that your grandmother's china or whatever the, the good stuff is back so what has happened i don't know when i well i started when my kids were little i started what i call thrifting yeah i, I go to thrift stores my mother loves stuff. to do that Oh, I love it. Yeah. And you know, we've got a, we've got some good ones up here. So, you know, I homeschooled my kids. I bought a lot of my supplies, educational. I bought my kids clothes. I mean, just toys, all kinds of stuff. So after they grew up, David and I got married in Las Vegas, actually. So I didn't have like a China registry or whatever. And then we bought this old house, you know, that has a butler's pantry and he's like oh you'll have a butler's pantry i had no china but i had a butler's pantry and it was the first time really like my kids were grown it was the first time i could actually kind of do those things you know because he had had his own businesses before and always was building stuff and legal and all that stuff so i st started i would see these big bins of china at the thrift store and i guess these grandmothers or whatever pass away and their grandchildren don't want this now they call it cottage core mm -hmm. if you've heard of cottage core or grand millennial is another term for granny chic i think it's so pretty and so i started buying it and I, anyway so i started creating these tablescapes i call them tablescapes and they are like little if you think about it and actually other people that have, that do tablescapes say that it's like building a little movie set is really kind of what it's like doing so you're creating a stage kind of for your guests to be entertained while they're sitting there. There's a couple of really good books. There's one from the designer Valentino and it's called The Emperor's Table. And there's another one by Diane von Fostenberg, who's married to Barry Diller, the billionaire. Mm -hmm. And both of those books are very beautiful and I love looking at them, but not everybody can buy silver like that in and has that kind of money to pour into a table. And some of these tablewares are extraordinarily expensive. So my idea was to create these really beautiful, elegant, because tablescapes can go cheesy too. You know, they can be kind of cheesy looking, but to create these beautiful, elegant, worthy of kind of Valentino or Diane von Fostenberg using thrifted materials. So it became like a hunt. It's we, it's like a treasure hunt. My daughter actually built her tiny house. She, you know, she lives in a very unusual tiny home. She just got a book deal and she's actually like, uh, probably has a series coming up on like with a major network. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, 
on thrifting and uh, re- upcycling and recycling. The younger daughter, one of the younger daughters is a des- fashion designer and she takes clothes that she buys at the thrift store or textiles and she refashions them and recuts them and makes, you know, new clothes. It's kind of a lifestyle and, you know, our house is a large old house with great big rooms and to go out and buy furniture, you know, is super expensive, but I buy unbelievable pieces of furniture. I just bought a painting last weekend for $59 with the, with the, the premium on it. I bought it at auction over here and I'm pretty sure that it's a famous artist and they missed it. And I'm about to have it authenticated, but I think it's worth a lot of money. <laughs> I think it's worth a lot of money. It's one of those hunches, you know, but this actually, this was spelled out. I had, I was looking through our daughter was looking for a carpet and that's where we buy our like rugs and stuff is at these auction houses or at the estate sales. So we were looking through and it was about 37 pages and we'd gone all the way to the end. And then I said, do you want to watch something with me? And she said, yes. So we turned on of all things. The next thing that came up was antique roadshow. And the very first segment was this painting that looked just like a painting that was in the auction. I said, I think I just saw that. So I went to see if it, that was the artist. And it said this one that I bought was unsigned. Hmm. And it turned out to be it's this artist called, uh, his name is Charles Edwin Porter, I believe. And he was an African-American artist at the turn of the century. And he was the only African-American artist that was like exhibited and displayed at that time because they did not recognize black artists the same way. So this guy is wonderful. Mark Twain was a huge fan and I'm almost positive that I picked up one of his pieces. (laughs) Let me know off air how that works out. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, it's, that's a whole different side of my life, but it's a hunt as well. You know, it's a treasure hunt and and I'm always looking for, you know, a bargain where I pay a dollar 25 and it's worth whatever. So the, the detective work and the hunting continues just in a different area. It's it's one of those things where you kind of have that itch you need to scratch and you just sometimes apply it to different areas of, of life. It really is. It's like, it's like treasure hunting. It, yeah. It's, yeah, it really is because you have to dig sometimes. The yeah. other uh, Patreon question we have here from Zachariah Smith is, did she see the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version of Boggy Creek 2? And if so, what did you think? So I have seen it and I know it's lighthearted and good fun. It doesn't really bother me. I mean, it would bother my dad though. Yeah. It would bother my dad. Yeah. My dad would, he would get his feelings hurt, I think. But, and it would really bother him probably the most because it has that real ring of truth to it. You know, my dad's shorts were too short and they, my brother shouldn't have been taking his shirt off and, you know. I think, I hate to admit, I think that's the only version I've seen of the film. <laughs> yeah. And 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 that's how I know, but that's how I know what Charles B. Pierce looks like. Because I saw that before I had yeah. seen some of the other movies that I got around to. So I, it's it was funny, we ran the trailer for that, or Exhumed Films had a, tra- a show at a, our drive-in that was just nothing but movie previews for two hours. And Boggy Creek 2 was one of the previews. <laughs> I was like, hey, your dad's on the big screen here. It's pretty cool. 
the other day I talked to Serene who plays Tanya in the film and Serene was my dad's girlfriend and she'd sent me a message the other day and she said hey what is this you're all over Boggy Creek too what's up with that and so I was like I know what is up with that and so I talked to her on the phone and I said you remember I auditioned for the part that Cindy Butler plays, right? And she said, I remember that. And I said, yeah. And I didn't get it because dad said to me, there's already too many pierces. We don't need another pierce. You did good, darling, but not this time. And kind of patted me on the shoulder and walked out. So he gives me that little tiny role in Boggy Creek 2 as a throwaway to pacify me so that I don't bug him anymore. How many and of your father's films were you in, 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 some, in some level? I was actually in all of them. <laughs> so you were present for the, for the making of, of all those movies? Of all of them, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. And I worked on the ones later on. Like I worked on Sacred Ground. I worked on Boggy Creek 2. I worked on Hawkin with Peter Fonda. I think those were the three I worked on. It's funny when I when I look back at the the, the films and think about them, I think back to what you had said about how he loved the old John Wayne, John Ford films. And his his movies were very outdoorsy movies. Like all the ones that I think of, with maybe an exception or two, are, are mostly I think of them as the images I have are the outdoors. So and and very some rugged, rugged outdoorsy movies too. So I can see that that John Wayne, John Ford western adventure spirit in most of what he did yeah and he loved jeremiah johnson like he loved that you know he that loved that any of that he liked sam peckinpah a lot too now i don't know if i had ever told you this too but when i was real young i remember my dad used to bring home those like true crime magazines all those detective magazines and things right yeah. with the real crime photos in there and my mother got so mad at him and she was like you can't bring these in the house anymore but i do believe that that probably influenced him greatly as well when it came to the town that dreaded sundown that makes sense he would have known the story from town that dreaded sundown just because of being in that region or do you think that's something oh yeah, from yeah. The, so, the other day i was i actually i pulled it out so his, my dad growing up his best friend was harry thomason who later is the producer, director, married to Linda Bloodworth mm -hmm. Thomason of Designing Women, Evening Shade. They were a power couple in TV for a while. Very much so, yeah. And and Harry, my dad actually introduced Harry to Lee Majors, who was looking for a producer for The Fall Guy. And Harry becomes his producer. That's how he gets to Hollywood, kind of. So he wrote a book that's actually really good. It's called Brother Dog. And the very first chapter talks about they were in Hampton, Arkansas, which is just over an hour away from Texarkana. And the Phantom Killer is making news. It's on the radio. It's in the newspaper and stuff like that. And Harry's comfortable because to him, it's a long way away. But my dad says, oh, no, uh-uh. Oh, because Harry's thinking it's in Texas, and Harry's, and then my dad informs him, no, 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 it's in Texarkana, which is 
halfway on the Arkansas border. <laughs> you know, it's like it's not far at all. And so that first chapter, it talks about how my dad scared him so much back in the day. And then he finds out that my dad is making the movie, you know, and and so uh, that, you know, kind of saying that he'd been preoccupied with it for quite a while. My dad loved to scare people. I mean, that was his, he got the biggest kick out of scaring you to death. <laughs> he knew how to do it on screen, certainly. Yeah, he would hide behind stuff, though, too. I remember he said, he told the story about when he was working at one, I think he was working at the TV station, maybe in Shreveport. So they would do the 6 and 10 news. Okay, the, back then the news came on at 10 o'clock. And then remember, they would they would play the national anthem and then it mm -hmm. would, oh, you get Johnny Carson. And then their TV would go off. Anyway, so he would be there till you know, till after the news had aired. And one of the guys, they had downtime a lot too, I think. But one of the guys, they were talking and he said this scariest thing that he, they were talking about the scariest thing. He said, it would be if somebody were hiding in my car. So my dad waits, he waits like several months. Okay, and then he gets off and he goes and he hides in the guy's car in the back seat and the guy comes and gets in his car and my dad raises up or whatever. Anyway, that guy put on the gas and ended up in the ditch. So, he, but he thought it was the funniest thing ever. He just thought that was the funniest. They both lived, so it was, it was great. Yeah, <laughs> but he would do, and he would always, when he would go to pick up the money, you know, at the Strand when he was acting as his own distributor, you know, we had to go, Shreveport, you had to go right through Falcon over Boggy Creek. And so you have to wait. The box office, they would not relate, release the money until like three quarters of the way through the movie in case someone wanted their money back. So we would have to wait till like, you know, whatever the minute was. And then my dad knew exactly. So, come on, let's go. He kind of, you know, tap you and said, like, let's go. So we'd be coming back at night. And he would always act like he was running out of gas on Boggy Creek. It's like, oh, no, why didn't somebody tell me to get the gas? And, you know, whatever. You hear that? Uh, you hear that? Yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> and then he, another thing, he would like to, if you were in the mountains, and he, he would act like the brakes went out, stuff like that. And it was torture a little bit, to be honest with you. That's the reason I did, to this day, I've never, y'all don't get mad at me, but I've never seen Halloween or I've never seen any of those because that's all he used to do is tell us like, you know, scary stories like that. I spent most of my life in fear. <laughs> <laughs> so I, before we wrap up, I just wanted once again, say that the best place for people to go and get copies of the legend of Boggy Creek is uh, www.legendofboggycreek.com. They can follow you, Pamela Pierce, Barslow on Facebook. And do you have any other projects coming up with your father's films or Boggy Creek that you wanted to to tease anybody with? Yes. So, I mean, we have, several, like I said, we have this soundtrack that'll be coming out imminently. And then I am, I am actively working on several other projects. I have the documentary and so much material. I'm looking for someone to help me put it all together in a way that's worthy of the restoration. Some people For have complained. Bonus features on the new 4K disc. 
Right. And when I do that, I will release them on Facebook and on YouTube for free. So anybody will be able to watch them. So you won't be missing out if it's not included in this new release that's coming up because it's still I'm still not including a bonus. Like I said, it's I've got too much material and I don't want I don't want it to be less than the work that we've done on the sure. But I have a couple of people that I've been talking to and they said that they would help and they're pretty familiar with my father's work. So hopefully we'll be able to get some stuff put together pretty Beautiful. quickly. And like I said, I, so I, I did buy some domain names to explore these other kind of mystery mask phantom killers. I think it's, it's so when you mentioned it, it totally makes sense in the the landscape we have now of true crime podcasts and true crime tv shows and all these streaming services there's absolutely a place and an audience for the phantom killer story and, and you know they they people in texarkana will talk about these murders in a similar way that they talked about the phantom killer when you have unsolved crimes of these mag that I've identified six now that I'm working on six different episodes and they're shocking. There's two kids. There were two kids and the mother had been admitted into the mental institute, into the mental hospital a couple of days later, but she was on lockdown. She was not getting out. And the father was working the overnight shift at the tire company and someone came in and murdered this 11 year old and the 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 boy was like eight years old and he was in a wheelchair wow and like there was no mercy and they don't know who did that at one time that lucas luke uh one wasn't it lucas that had it confessed to all these killings oh henry lee lucas yeah Yes, so he confessed to it, but he didn't really have the details correct, and so they threw it out. So, but I mean, there's, but you know, I mean, somebody, came, and it was a little house. I mean, it was no, no robbery, no sexual, whatever. But when you have something like that happen, and then, gosh, the mother's in a mental institution that it, it literally drove her to suicide afterwards. You know, so, but anyway. I can't tell you the one that's related, but there's one that's related to my dad's titles. I, I look forward to uh, seeing or hearing this when it finally comes out, because it's that kind of stuff is is fascinating and all the more creepy and disturbing because it really happened, much is like really Town of the Dreaded Sundown and Legend of Boggy Creek. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today with me, Pam. It's It's been a pleasure. I very much look forward to seeing this new 4K uh, UHD disc and uh, everything else that you put out through uh, Pam Pierce Productions. Thank you, sir. Thank you for inviting me on and letting me ramble on. My kids tease me if there's ever a kidnapper and they take me, they'll return me because all <laughs> I can talk about is Boggy Creek. No, no, you make, this is the perfect podcast guest because it's it's all about talking, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you so much. And for everybody listening, we will see you at the drive-in. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for coming out tonight to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater. We hope you'll come back and see us again real soon. The exit is on the right-hand side of the screen at the front of the field. And most importantly, have a very safe trip home. Good night and God bless you.